Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. See, this is. This is the danger of having a conversation at 3 p.m. the day before Thanksgiving, right? Hey, this is when I'm at my best. I, I can't speak for the rest of you guys. Oh. Well, I'm just excited about um, the holidays coming up so I can actually get the work done that I needed to do during my weekdays. It's been, um, <laughs> been that kind of year. What, there's a meme going around that says growing up means convincing yourself that next week it'll get easier. <laughs> <laughs> I like the one where it's... Uh, it's it's just like a stick figure and he's like i just need to get through this week i just need to get through this week as this big cloud just keeps growing and growing and it you know you get to next week and it's it's never better <laughs> well a big cloud growing and growing sounds like a transition to me <laughs> yes what a lovely segue can you introduce yourself to the people and tell us about the book we are here to discuss Sure. My name is David Craig. I'm a clinical professor at USC in the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. I'm a visiting scholar right now at Harvard in the Berkman Klein Center and the Institute for Rebooting Social Media. And I'm the author of Apocalypse Television, How the Day After Helped End the Cold War. Fantastic. Oh, by the way, I'm Jason Fields, if I remember right. And Matthew Galt is the other guy uh, they, you're on the microphone. They know who we are at this point. Uh <laughs> um so i loved you you kind of you blind emailed me i think after seeing some of the other one of the other things i'd written about in vice and i was so excited i didn't know this book existed and i was so excited to get a copy of it because this is one of my favorite 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 cold war anecdotes um is that reagan watched the day after uh and it depressed him and there's other things going on, obviously, but was part of what spurred him into action towards uh, like trying to trying to draw down a lot of this nuclear stuff. And this is a thing that we know is we know is true. It's not just apocryphal because he wrote about it in his personal diary. Like it is something that he he felt compelled enough to write down and is like in you can go and look at it in the archive if you want to his thoughts on this particular movie. Uh, but. Let's back way, way, way up because <laughs> there's a lot more going on in this book than just – I mean, it's primarily about the day after, but I, I was really interested in where you start in the prologue uh, and kind of talking about you know, what was going on when you wrote the prologue and like what were some of the television shows kind of running through your mind. Uh, so we, can we start there? Can you tell me that story? Sure. Um, as much as this is a uh... – history book for some to me it's a how-to book for today it's a primer for the fact that we are still sitting at the precipice of not one but a number of existential crises that we're facing and as we were sitting down through oh i'll obliquely refer to some political um upheaval populist uh, movements going on around the world that seem to portend a lot of the same patterns from the 20th century that caused great ruptures in the way civilizations were operating. And then I, and then we were watching the reemergence of new Cold War superpower contestations now with an even more powerful and more um, mysterious and, and more um, uh, challenging uh, opponent, if you will, in China. Um, and then, of course, the worldwide epidemic had emerged when I was finally sitting down to write this. And I was finding tremendous parallels to the last pandemic that we had just that for many have has still not dissipated, that we're still ex dealing with around the world um, 40 years later. Um, and then, of course, I sit down to write the book and I turn on the television um, thinking that I'm taking a moment's breather and I'm watching almost the exact scene that I was just describing in the book of uh, a nuclear power plant on the verge possibly of being destroyed and disintegrated and causing a mass 
mass extinction event in that area. And this, in this instance, it was because the Russians were invading Ukraine and bombing the Zyperintia nuclear power plant. And I was having almost a surreal out-of-body moment thinking I'd stepped into a time warp or something because um, this was the opening sequence in the book um, around the author of The Day After, the man who conceived the idea, watching the same scene in the China Syndrome and thinking, well, what would happen if this were not a nuclear power plant, but a nuclear attack. Well, so the book is, I think, it's a deep dive into like the creation of this monumental made-for-TV movie uh, that that shook up an American president. Uh, but it also, I think, is about the transformative power of art and also these little bits of pop culture ephemera that we've forgotten. Um, and I want to focus on the China Syndrome, uh, cause I think it's, uh, like, I don't think there's even a place to stream it now. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that that's like, uh, cause I was looking for that and I was looking for, um, the Karen Silk movie that's got Silkwood. Oh, yeah, Silkwood. Silkwood. And I couldn't find that either. Uh, cause I wanted to watch, cause I wanted to watch that. This, there was this weird, there was this run kind of in the seventies through the eighties of these high profile, movies about the nuclear industry in America, not just nuclear weapons, but also like the power plants um, and the people that like manuf like the people that, that work in this industry. Um, so can you tell us about China syndrome and like why it's important and why it sets the stage for all of this? Sure. Well, I just to say that I, I, I have a lot of, uh, anecdotal evidence that could take up the entire podcast of how um, throughout the history of Hollywood filmmakers, storytellers, studio executives, programmers have found the means to occasionally foreground social issues and urgent existential matters in the form of entertainment, but for a purpose. These were often referred to as message movies in the day, which was a, almost a pejorative. And Television movies in particular found that metier, it found a, a much more welcome site for a social issue and topic themed kinds of stories that, that foreground these issues in the seventies. But every now and then, um, feature films, particularly in that era, uh, would, uh, address these topics. And the topic of the day that was most pressing or one of the most pressing topics was, of course, the threat of nuclear war and nuclear power. Um, so China Syndrome was a uh, one of those message movies that got made that was very much a, in the character-driven model of, you know, kind of a hero's journey um, that's set against the a, a what-if um, disaster movie scenario of a the meltdown of a nuclear power plant. Now, audiences up until that moment had never heard of the China Syndrome and who knows what they imagined it meant. Um, but once they saw the movie, they fully understood that this spectacular power source had the capacity to cause spectacular damage and man-made facilities to prevent that from happening were fundamentally always flawed and at risk. So uh, it was a dramatization of what could happen in those scenarios. Um, and it featured um, people like Jane Fonda, who was renowned for taking on such important causes. And and uh um oh i'm just blanking on his name but my um the actor but uh anyway um yeah it was it was a pretty powerful film that was successful in its own right um and as i mentioned the programming executive at abc saw the movie and that's where he conceived of the idea for a television movie based on a similar premise of what would happen if there was a nuclear attack on the united states but here's what made this e er issue even more urgent is that around three weeks after china syndrome came out in theaters the real world version of this appeared um at three mile island um in pittsburgh outside of pittsburgh with the world almost experienced its first ever china syndrome came perilously close and caused a huge amount of uh, destruction within the the region um that pales in comparison of course to what happened just four years later in chernobyl um, but it was really the the first uh, evidence that we had that we were not we were not yet equipped to manage and handle this enormous power that we'd been given by Oppenheimer, um, and uh, that it was uh, it, it was likely very likely that we were going to 
be headed down a spectacularly perilous path if we didn't come back. I remember some of the pop culture that was around this at the time, including the Pepsi syndrome, which was the Mad Magazine take on the whole thing. And it was someone, of course, knocked over a Pepsi onto one of the consoles. And that was the end of the world, basically, if I remember right. Oh, this is an SNL skit. Oh, this, you know what this reminds me of? Remember when SNL did a remake of Citizen Kane and it was, turns out it wasn't Rosebud, it was roast beef and he was choking choking on a sandwich. (laughs) Uh, We've, we've, Matthew, I'm not sure this is the tone of the podcast. Did we miss the brief? Like it's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. It's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. We're talking about TV shows and movies. And if you if you can't laugh at nuclear disasters, what can you laugh at? Well, that's just it, right? You know, as Matthew has described in, in previous accounts, you either place these contextually within horror movies, because that was the only way we could process this information, was in the guise of a horror movie or a disaster or some sort of dystopian science fiction fantasy. Or we put it over in some sort of category where we had to laugh about it because the alternative was far too grim. But Mm. once in a while, once in a while, feature films and television movies could come out with a straightforward, in-your-face, very serious, if not some wildly dystopian account of what's very likely to happen if we don't change policy patterns, the course of history, etc., and that's what the day after is, right? And and what it set out to do. It was conceived uh in this way, right? It was it was meant to be maybe a polemic is the wrong word, but it was meant to frighten and show. Uh you know, you you mentioned the executive, it was uh, Brandon Stoddard, I think I'm saying that correctly. Uh well, can you tell us about him and like why why he wanted to make something like this? Absolutely. And it's just a reflection of the fact that this was not a coincidence or luck that this movie came out and achieved what it did. Um, There were other extenuating circumstances that I know we'll probably discuss. But Brandon Stoddard had been at the network at ABC for over a decade. He'd earned his way up to prime time by having handled children's Saturday morning uh, television, where he also brought Schoolhouse Rock. In because he saw this as an opportunity to not only capture kids' attention, but also use that to educate in ways that might make kids more interested through not only state-of-the-art animation in the time, but now, when you look back, the best jazz music we've ever heard, you know, that really instilled, (laughs) indoctrinated jazz to a whole generation of us. You're like, conjunction, junction, we know that tune. Um, And then um, then he migrated over to, he took over all of daytime television and um, not only took on soap operas, but introduced the after-school special, which in many ways was a continuation of 50s health movies that used to be shown in the classroom. Instead, these were combining a Hollywood cinematic storytelling with a uh, educational, usually a health communication type message for kids who were in the 70s increasingly coming home from school without parental supervision, with nothing else to do, and their parents weren't there to supervise. And this was a great way for them to continue to learn, but also do so in the in the form of usually what we call would call them teen YA stories now. Um, so, uh, he had a very strong, uh, commitment to harnessing the power of the medium, as did his colleagues, um, not only to make money, but to also educate. He came from a generation of, of, of programming executives. And I don't know if you saw the quote in the book, but it's one of my all time favorite quotes. Uh, uh, someone who worked with Brandon said that we all understood from our research that television was the only book on the shelf. It's my favorite quote. I love that quote because uh, he said, you know, so we we were very aware we had some responsibility. That does, does that mean that they didn't make crap and exploited affair? Of course they did. But where they could, where those opportunities afford themselves, where they had particular power license strategy opportunity, they would come in and produce these, particularly in the TV movies, these uh, issue-oriented message movies. So. Brandon had had a huge, huge cultural hit with Roots, the miniseries. And in fact, it was one of the reasons he became known as the father of the miniseries 
for those listening today, um, the mini series is what we call a limited series, but we don't because it's no longer mini. Um, but uh, it became clear to Brandon that um, in his role as the um, head of TV movies and then also the head of ABC Circle Films, which is their feature film division, um, he had a platform where he not only could make money for the network, um, but also um, address and, and foreground social issues that really matter. Thank you so much for like bringing back all of my childhood. I mean, I, I know that Matthew is trying to keep up with this, but, but I was there. I remember these movies after school um, and the various lessons. <laughs> it, it's, it's funny. I was thinking about um, by the time I was a teenager, like that it, after school special was a joke, right? It's hard for me to conceive of anyone ever taking them seriously. The, you were weren't you watching Total Request Live over on MTV and seeing Britney show up in Times Square? Wasn't that your jam? That was, yeah, yeah, that was my that was my era. You know, that was like that's what was on after school. I wasn't here to learn anything. Uh, I, I beg to differ with you. I know the executives who put on those MTV shows, including Real World, which was in many instances one of the most profoundly influential films or series. Sorry. Uh, to address social issues, but in the form of this spectacularly salacious concept of let's take a bunch of sexy, hot, diverse 20 somethings into a social experiment and throw them in a house for three months and see what happens. And you, you saw so many important critical issues around identity and representation and queerness and AIDS and sexuality and gender and um, race were, were foreground in your, your era, Matthew. So every era um, has different formats and different different types of pop culture that come along and reflect and make us think more deeply about who we are and how we might be better. What do you think then? I guess what I'm missing now, and this is a tangent, but I want to go down the road is what, is there anyone doing similar work now? And can I just not see it? Cause the, the media landscape feels very fractured uh, and catered to niches and also more cynical but also like I don't have kids. I'm probably just not seeing, I guess there's bluey, right? Everyone loves bluey and that's not, uh, uh, and that's not cynical. Is there anything um, similar now? Do you think I would, let's say, um, how much time do we have? Um, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm renowned for being far too, uh, celebratory of these things, but I would argue that the environmental message in the last two episodes, this, the last two Avengers movies were uh, profound and the debates that people were having around Thanos were in many ways spot on and deliberate and um, consciously part of the critique as was the anti-fascist messages of decades of star Wars and Harry Potter, as was the queer uh, closeted messages that were being emitted through X-Men but I'll also digress into uh, other areas. Um, Craig Mazin is the heir apparent, I think, of the Brandon Stoddard kind of uh, model of let's harness the medium to bring in the biggest possible audience to then also elevate and escalate issues that are of interest to us. So, of course, we all know about his success with Chernobyl, which, again, what made this so remarkable is it was not only hugely successful on HBO, but it went on to almost instantaneously across streaming platforms around the world, both legally and illegally, even in Russia, where received history of Chernobyl was totally different. Um, so uh, we saw that if that happen. And I would argue that the last. The last of us. The last of us is uh, mm. should be pure Galtian. It is. It's you've got. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It should be because every episode is set, of course, in a post-apocalyptic account with zombies that we almost never see. But each and every episode is a mirror on contemporary society and who we are and how we could be better. And of course, the the, the queer themed episode itself is so profound and moving. It's, I think, probably the best hour of media I know you can't call it TV anymore um, that we've seen in years. And it, it, it resonated uh, in spaces no one could have ever imagined and people who would never dream of watching a zombie film. So I think those are uh, examples of where 
those narratives are being told, but I'm going to, um, I'm going to save for later my, my, um, my, my discussion about creator culture and social media and which is uh, an area that I've been uh, researching and writing about for 10 years now. And I would point out that the first, what is the first scene of the last of us TV show that is not, is a scene that is not in the video game uh, is like a firing line style, 1970s chat program uh, where they're talking about uh, the fungus that is going to be, uh, I wouldn't even say the antagonist, but like the, the thing that causes the apocalypse and what are they, what does he lay the, what does he warn about? Like, Oh, if things get too hot, if the world heats up, uh, it could create the perfect uh, environment for this thing to thrive. So it's exactly, it's all parable for climate change, right? But you have on top of that, the COVID crisis, which, you know, every time these epistemic kind of events occur in the world, um, whether it's the rise of starkly different ideological positions around how we organize the societies, democracy, fascism, communism, it's nuclear power, nuclear war, nuclear energy, or it's the capacities of pandemics to um, and nature basically to rise up and eliminate us because we've we've been terrible stewards of the planet. That's um, right, we've and, sinned. Yeah, we've it sinned. always introduces new waves of critical pop culture, and I, I use that phrase deliberately. Critical in the sense that it's pop culture that is designed to make us think about the power we yield in the world and the power relations that we exercise in the world. The, the way in which we um, treat others and and treat our 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 planet. So, oh my God! It's the flood over and over again. Is, Noah's flood. Is. Okay, sorry, That's my mind my drag is name antediluvian. <laughs> <laughs> I love that word. Wow, that is a great word. Wow. Okay. All right. I'm going home now. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs> let's uh, let's bring it back to the day after. Uh, put it pin. I do want to talk about. I, I want to. I do want to get your thoughts on the social media stuff uh, towards the end of the conversation. So let's put a pin in that. Uh, but uh, there's a great paragraph at the opening one of these chapters. Um, how is the creative team responsible for the day after? Uh, like a classic vaudeville joke. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I can't even remember the exact framework, but you know, I wanted to hook people into that that portion of the of the chapter, which is, you know, in many ways it was a symbol, Avengers assemble, right? It was it was the A team, it was it was the the seven samurai, it was it, every great uh, you know, uh collective kind of uh, superhero movie always has an origin story. How did these people wind up all having to work together and collaborate around these things? So yeah, I think we we brought in um, uh, the ABC executives that work for Brandon who were charged with taking on and managing the project from Stu Samuels to Steve White. Um, we brought in um, one of the most remarkable, lovely human beings I've ever spoken to in my life, Ed Hume, who just passed away a month ago, who was the screenwriter who had um, made a career out of uh, writing spectacularly successful pilots for um, detective shows. And at night, he would also write TV movies that featured in foreground social issues, assuming that m none of those would ever get made. And um, But some did, um, including, a, a, a mini, I think it was a miniseries about the Munich Olympics. And uh, so I, I like to call him Batman. So he, had, like, he was living a double life. But he couldn't believe it the day that his agent got him a meeting with Brandon to pitch uh, his idea of what he would do for a post-apocalyptic look at um, um, America after after an attack. And what it turned out was one of those rare instances where uh, they already had kind of a Vulcan mind meld. I'm using Vulcan deliberately. You know where I'm going here, right, Matthew? Um, uh, and so... Uh, he walked out of the room shocked that Brandon had agreed to everything that he pitched because Brandon had already concluded that's the story he wanted to tell, a story that was set in the heartland, that avoided politics, that did not in any way engage with, you know, the geopolitics or, or you know, generals and pentagons and, and, uh, and warfare and, and tanks and, and so forth. He wanted this to be what television does, which is let's take the banal and then make it a spectacle. 
So it was uh, designed from the get-go as you know, a good hour and a hour and a half of character building about the most mundane lives of Midwesterners that everyone watching in TV would immediately identify with. And then another hour of watching that completely disintegrate after the bombs drop. So um, the script came through uh, and uh, Brandon called Hume and said, congratulations. This is, apparently Brandon was so kind of blown away. Everyone was by the script that they uh, w- almost wept. Um, and when he told Hume that his m- project was getting made, Hume was despondent, which is weird. You spend two years writing a, a, a three hour movie and uh, you find out they're making it and you're depressed. And it turns out, as Ed said, um, can you imagine what it's like waking up each day thinking about the end of the world? Um, that just kind of tells you a lot about the character and the nature of, of who Hume was. Just spectacularly, profoundly conscious. Uh, it's a hard and, sell. And, you know, yeah. the, the story is a hard sell, I think. Um, because it doesn't have, like, the, the entire script it doesn't focus on... There are heroes in it, right? But not in the traditional way we would think of like a hero today in a, uh, in a story. Um, and it doesn't have, it doesn't have a happy ending really. No, you know, there's no, there's no salvation. Yeah. There's no real catharsis. And like, I think that it's funny. I'm I'm just, I'm working through this as I'm think, uh, like, as I'm, I'm working through the thought as I have it. I think that that's something that marks a lot of the really great nuclear fiction for me um, is that you are left at the end of it with a, what the hell do I do with that kind of feeling Uh, that there is no catharsis. There's no resolution. uh, Or if there is a resolution, it's that things are demonstrably worse, right? Threads, obviously, which we will get into. um, And the war game are like the big ones for me. Uh, and this, the day after, right? I, I'm going to commend you on mentioning the war game, which is to me a spectacular uh, a twist in this whole story is that it was the plot of all those movies, including Testament, were already done. And it was already written and it had already been made 30 years before, 20 years before by the BBC who chickened out and didn't want to air Peter Watkins pseudo documentary and didn't wind, wound up throwing it out there in theaters theatrically. And it won the best Oscar for documentary. Despite being a fictionalized account, it yeah. wins a best, do- best documentary Oscar. Yes. I, that's, that's, a, that's a, another podcast about how um, we, we still, we've now ossified in these horrible taxonomies for what media content is. And, no one can tell me exactly what even a reality television even means. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, it's kind of a spectacular to think that there was an antecedent in that. I never got around to asking Ed if he had seen the war doc, um, but I think there's almost a uh, primal mythological kind of uh, pattern that you saw emerge almost concurrently. Uh, we used to call it when I was pitching in Hollywood where they would, buy a similar project and two movies around the same theme would be made at the same time, like asteroid movies and so forth. They would call it the collective subconsciousness. And you realize they, they weren't using the words correctly. Um, but uh, threads Testament the day after they all have the same premise. They just have different budgets and different audiences, but almost the exact same premise. I mean, those are fighting words for people who, you know, believe that threads is an infinitely better movie, but um, I, and I am the day after is important. And I love the day after, but threads is my, I like threads better. Um, and mine is Testament. So there you go. Um, but, uh, you know, there, it's just, uh, there's a great book on atomic cinema by a scholar named Jerome Shapiro, who t- to go back to your original comment that there's been over a thousand movies, um, or you, I think you said it in a previous interview, but there's been over a thousand movies that have foreground or put nuclear war in the background. Um, and, uh, and all in many instances, various ways in which filmmakers and storytellers were desperate to try to elevate these issues and concerns beyond just the, the, the choir, the people who are already, um, concerned about that i would say though there's also the element these are the stories that human beings want to hear um i mean when you think about the fact that the book of revelations 
is actually somehow stuck there at the end of uh, you know the New Testament, um, where they've tried to kick it out four or five different times over the centuries, but people really like it. Uh, and I mean, it's the one that you can get behind, and there's a number of the devil and you know all sorts of fun stuff, the horror of Babylon, whatever the I mean, as he babbled on. But anyway, I mean, the the point to me is partially like this human made apocalypse is perfect. I mean, it it fulfills something in humanity that we need, that we need to see the end of everything. And it, we just, you know, how does it end? How does it all end? And, and I just think it's interesting. There's just something there that goes beyond looking at reality of what after the nuclear war would look like and just gives us some er need. It fulfills it, you know? Uh, we, in, I'm going to shut up now. Um, it, it shouldn't. <laughs> it, it shouldn't have worked, right? It shouldn't, um, because uh, this is uh, even in the in most of the narratives that you see on television and films. There's still going to be a third act. There's still going to be a, a way to come back from. There's there's a, a the climax should come after. Um, and I'm going to make the argument and see if we can really twist our audience into a pretzel here. But I'm going to make the argument that. Oppenheimer was a two-act structure. Um, it was the uh, explosion, everything leading up to the explosion, including his whole backstory, and then, of course, spending the rest of his life futilely, spoiler, um, trying to put the genie back in the bottle. I'm also going to argue that this book and the events surrounding the day after is the third act. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We uh, live in the, th the third act of the Oppenheimer film. Oh, that's so great. I love that. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, I got points from Jason. Yes. <laughs> uh, this, I love is, that. this is, if you will, Oppenheimer, the sequel. No, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. We are the, we are the faraway look in his eyes at the end of the, at the end of the film, right? Like this is, as he reckons with what he's done, this is what he's done. We're in it. We live in it right. every day. Right. Although as you've raised in prior interviews, that has lulled us into thinking that we're out of it. No, 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 no. All we did was temporarily pull back from the precipice. We haven't necessarily eliminated the threat of this energy, nor have we necessarily found even better ways to curtail the possible effects. So I, I, I would argue that um, it turns out even this is a limited series now. <laughs> so we, get, we still have more, much more to try to do and, uh, and even going back to your reference to Silkwood, which I would add, by the way, was produced by ABC Circle Films, which Brandon Stoddard commissioned. Um, so as the the day after had aired, he was on his way to the premiere of Silkwood, a movie that he commissioned, which, of course, helped in many ways contribute to uh, combined. I can't imagine one single person having had as much profound an effect on the nuclear age. All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Yeah. 
All right, Angry Planet listeners, welcome back. We're talking Reagan and the day after. Can we talk about? Uh, I want to pick you. I want to take you up on your uh, foreshadowing, your Star Trek foreshadowing. Uh, okay. Let's talk about the director of this of the day after. Uh, why? Arguably one of the most brilliant guys that you'll ever meet. Why did the person who just had the the who just saved the Star Trek franchise with Wrath of Khan slum it and make a TV movie? Yeah, that's the that's the that's the um, seven million dollar question. Um, he uh, couldn't uh, avoid what was this overwhelming sense of responsibility to try to bring the world back from the precipice. Period. He was willing to sacrifice what at that moment could have been not only money, fame, glory, all sorts of things, and that doesn't mean he walked away from feature films. But it was a detour, and it took him really not only off the feature map for a while, but it also took him um, deep into despair as through the process. Um, but it, fundamentally, this came from someone, again, uh, who shared a fundamental belief in the power of entertainment and Hollywood to reach um, unpersuaded and unaware audiences of the peril and risks out in the world all within the guise of cinema, Hollywood cinematic narrative storytelling. And he wanted to uh, draw blood, right? Yes. Like that was his intention. I, I mean, he wasn't um, able to uh, uh, keep his political uh, leanings uh, at bay, although it was not permitted within the context of the film. The film was pretty much the script that was written. Um, and so there was no introduction of, for example, in fact, he was the reason the film did not feature any kind of explicit political account of who started the war. Um, so ironically, he's the person who, who saved that from happening because of a bad judgment call on the part of the editors in the, in the network. But he, uh, he did uh, reveal himself as wanting desperately not only to, uh, pull us out of the madness mindset of cold war thinking, but also to um, in fairness, he, he was not a fan of Reagan and uh, wanted Reagan to go down um, and hope that this might persuade audiences that, that the path we were on led by Reagan at that moment uh, was perilous. I don't think he had probably any idea that his movie would actually align with Reagan's beliefs, um, which had been really masked and um and and held close to the vest and uh reagan was a i don't know if you're ready to go into that but um the irony here is that reagan was a nuclear abolitionist he really hated the bomb um and did not believe as his pentagon officials did in a new a winnable nuclear war um but he wasn't he wasn't pursuing a very effective strategy up until that moment let's pause real quick and let's describe the movie Okay, so the camera comes up. <laughs> Amber waves of grain. <laughs> we literally sweep across the Midwest like the opening sequence of Dallas. I don't know if any of you, you won't remember that. Jason might. Um, and then <laughs> we land in this very small uh, uh, town of Lawrence, Kansas, which is right outside of Kansas City. And it looks like anywhere in uh, middle America. Um but that includes the fact that it is surrounded by nuclear bombs. Um, there are missile silos dotting the entire landscape, which the predict production mentioned that you couldn't you couldn't fly from Kansas or or drive through Kansas City to Lawrence, which is about half an hour without seeing dozens of them. Um, if you really could use a helicopter, you could really see smack in the middle of all the cornfields where all these um, ICBMs. And then there was a, a military base near in one direction, a nuclear power plant in another direction. If there was going to be a place where uh, the Soviets would like to attack uh, to truly cripple our defense system, um, it wasn't inconceivable. It was rather deliberately thought of as uh, Lawrence, Kansas, ground zero. Um, so as much as people feared a the attack happening in major city centers. Um, this is where you would disable a lot of our nuclear deterrents and, and facilities. So we're in Kansas. Um, and like you said, the first, the beginning of the movie is, is basically a relationship drama. 
It's a soap opera. It's a soap opera. It, yeah. Right, with, it, with the thing that is going to affect all of their lives, kind of a hum in the background. Right. They're going to the museum. They're getting married. They're talking about having, you know, teenage sex. They're getting haircuts in the barber salon. They're walking, you know, um, it is as bucolic, if arguably dull and boring as you could possibly imagine, um, which just makes it all the more remarkable um, that um, uh, audiences stayed through to the second half, but also why the movie, which had originally been planned as a two night event, um, would have never worked. Um, because um, audiences might not have made it all the way to the bomb dropping. The second half of the movie, and so all of a sudden, um, in the middle of this film, which is an hour of screen time, but that's um, not including ad breaks, of which there weren't many, because there weren't many advertisers, um, all of a sudden, um, uh, inexplicably, for reasons that aren't fully detailed in the film, and by design, um, they see the missiles take off, which they know means that if missiles are leaving, missiles will be landing. And everyone goes immediately into panic um, and the streets are chaos and people are racing to get to their homes and their families and to get to their um, uh, get food from the shelves and to get down into their shelters. And then, boom, um, it all happens and it all happens. uh in many ways, as we probably had imagined from previous films, but it lays out in this spectacular montage sequence that goes on for about eight minutes. And it's they threw everything into that sequence. They had collected all sorts of footage that they'd found um, of previous nuclear tests and effects and imagery. Um, they applied some pretty spectacularly cheesy uh, special effects of uh x-rays of of skeletons of bodies to emulate the x-ray effect um you saw of course the the less known but even more profoundly uh disturbing emp effect which was the fact that the immediate immediately upon impact all all electronics would shut down including cars and 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 every technology that we own um and uh and then of course the mushroom cloud the famous mushroom cloud which we talk about in the book it's been described in other in other places which was the hardest thing for them to recreate until by accident someone poured milk into a glass of tea and when it hit the bottom it exploded just like a mushroom cloud and they just simply filmed that turned it upside down colorized it and boom there you have it wow seriously seriously and it was almost like the day before they had to show the cut and they just were, were were panicking. And all of a sudden they walked into the producer and said, take a look at this. Yeah. Wow. I could really use some tea right now. <laughs> uh, okay. So well, uh, you have to have milk in it. So you have to speak with a British accent. So, <laughs> uh, Can we talk for a second a little bit about, uh, do you have anything in the book, which I apologize for not reading because uh, I know you love, love spring. It's a graphic novel. Wait for the graphic novel, Jason. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, that'll help me. <laughs> um, anyway, but well, but uh, do you talk much about like what the effect on school kids? Because they're, I just remember because I was one and uh, my junior high school said, okay, this movie's coming on. You can all go home. And we'll talk about it tomorrow unless your parents won't let you watch it. Anyway, I just, so can you talk a little bit about what the you know, uh, things are going on around it? So what's fascinating is, is to remember again, um, ABC had a, a very large commitment to educational television, which means they had a lot of partners with the National Teaching Association partnered around ABC after school specials that a whole department dedicated to educational research around the effects of television. And the, the data came back that suggested that there might be some very real reasons to be concerned about exposing children to this subject matter. And there was an exhaustive amount of focus group work and a lot of uh, prep um, in terms of sending out all sorts of, of educational curriculum. They went in and, um, and gave schools all sorts of, of uh, recommended pedagogy, um, holding, uh, you know, pre-sessions to talk about the film, advising parents about whether or not they should show the, the film, a lot of uh, questions about whether or not it should come with a, um, a, a censor or an adult warning on the film. Um, this was all uh, 
part and parcel of of the much bigger and broader and spectacular level of hype and hysteria that surrounded this film. And um, I, I suppose this is where I get to bring in one of my favorite subjects that's never been discussed before around the making of this film was that, that it got um, it got hijacked um, by um, some rogue publicist who had managed to get a hold of a copy, an early cut of the film, and had used that copy to get the news um, journalist to be interested in this subject matter and start writing about it and doing feature stories well in advance. But they also sent out press kits to hundreds, if not thousands, of nuclear activist organizations who were already well aligned around this cause because we were at the peak of the nuclear freeze movement. So this became no longer just a piece of entertainment. Um, it became a tool, a vehicle for, through which both sides of the nuclear debate wound up playing out their deepest fears and anxieties what, publicly in the press and in the media on the page of every mag, uh, in every newspaper on the cover of every magazine through op-eds and radio, television broadcasting, um, which of course bought the film more PR and marketing that you could, no one could afford to do today. It was, uh, kind of a once in a generation kind of event. And then there was also a big panel discussion about what the film meant, right? With some pretty, uh, it was a pretty fascinating panel. Can you tell us who was on there? Um, so it was Ted Koppel was, um, the ABC news had been approached by the white house to air a, uh, a news special after the movie in a way to try to not only reframe the movie in their better interest, um, and to promote their policy, but also to prevent moral panic. There was a genuine reason to think that this, you know, the streets were going to go fill up with people in total, total terror. Um, I personally find this special called Viewpoint to be more terrifying than the actual movie itself. Uh, it was a part of an experimental form that uh, Ted Koppel had introduced um, and ABC News had introduced, which was basically live public debate. And we don't can't even get our head around something like that today. Um, and so featured on this panel were arguably some of the most powerful and important public intellectuals of the era. So William F. Buckley and um, uh, Casper Weinberger, I think, um, uh, Carl Sagan, the astronomer, um, Ellie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor, um, uh, a number of other Kissinger, kind of military, Kissinger. And Robert McNamara. Oh, I, I don't know why I'm blanking on it because I <laughs> keep watching it over and over again. Um, you know, there are three things I'd like to highlight about that. First was this movie ends on this spectacularly terrifying note and it cuts to Ted Koppel sitting at his desk saying, get up, look out your window. As you can see, we're still here. I mean, I'm sorry, that gives me such spectacular chills. What you've just witnessed is something like the equivalent of Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which, if you think about, was almost spectacularly perfect framing for this. Because, of course, that whole point of A Christmas Carol was a morality tale. It was a message move, a message story, right? Um, and his job was to both keep us from screaming out into the void, but also pay closer attention now to the debate that was about to occur. Then a bunch of these men sat around the table in the most civilized way and debated whether or not they thought the world would end. I think that was more horrifying than anything we'd witnessed in the film before. Just the fact that people could just very civilly say, oh, I don't know. My hunch says, or my scientific beliefs would tell me, or my ideology, or my, you know, political philosophy tells me. And it was such a crystallization of the fact that even the most profoundly brilliant human beings could disagree over the most mortal kind of issues. And, and then the third thing about that viewpoint special, which you can all see online, um, is that they then cut to audience questions. Now, these were all pre-planned, but still, the audience questions were so much more profound, so much more powerful and meaningful, and, and really, I thought, crystallized what real Americans were more concerned about than these kind of esoteric debates about whether or not nuclear winter would happen. 
And um, to me, the viewpoint special is the double punch here. Um, it's it's it having that follow on the heels of the movie wound up delivering an infinitely more profound message. It said to audiences, while you think you've watched some sort of a disaster, Hollywood disaster, science fiction movie, um, we're going to sit around and debate the fact that it could possibly be true one day. It's it's funny because I think the first time I learned about that special was before I'd come to the topic of like nuclear weapons. I remember reading about it. I think it's in amusing ourselves to death by Neil Postman. Yes. And he yes, derides it. Of yeah, course. of course, uh, like despises it. Uh, Cause it's right. like kind of counter to his, his, his entire argument. Um, by the way, the, the book um, apocalypse television was um, right below Neil Postman's book on the bestseller list over the weekend. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of funny to have really come around um, in myself to this to this point where we can't we like we have to meet people where they are and we the mediums change the mediums change and the messages that are transported through those mediums change but it doesn't you can't fight against the medium itself uh you'll lose and you'll end up writing something that like gen xers think is really cool uh briefly and then we'll be forgotten i think i think uh that was just an aside uh just like it was a weird way to first learn about this thing um well i'm actually gonna jump on that matthew and say um one of the first projects that i did around this topic was convincing a publisher to produce a graphic novel about trinity um and it was designed explicitly for educational audiences it has gone through multiple publications my name isn't on it but i can i can i can show you the letter um and the editor basically said no you're absolutely right this is an important thing and uh and it was designed for the fact that kids don't read history books but they read graphic novels and they play video games that often have history in it um and uh so we uh he the editor managed to get the book out there and uh and that's managed to go through multiple um publications um i did design a project that never got off the ground with the history channel that was basically using game elements to recreate history and the first topic was trinity so um uh like you uh i have a whole book of a uh, whole shell uh, entire shelves filled with atomic bomb books because it's consumed me um and i've always looked for vehicles and models to tell the story and the apocalypse television was originally a pitch for a limited series about the making of the most important movie ever made um and maybe it will be one day again but that was originally what i had tried to do as i don't think we've discussed. I was a producer of TV movies for 25 years. This was going to be my swan song, my my last hurrah, because to me it was the most important subject that I could possibly tell, which was the fact that once upon a time, but as in every time, storytellers came together to figure out a way to save the world. And they're going to have to do it again and again and again. Is the movie the reason why I don't wake up screaming anymore in the middle of the night? Because I do remember watching it and going through that am i going to wake up tomorrow thing through a big chunk of the 80s and um i don't feel that same way even though maybe matthew maybe you would tell me that i should because nuclear apocalypse is closer than I it's think. worse now in some ways <laughs> it's matthew <laughs> i i think it's probably been mitigated matthew is much more eloquent on why we don't still think about nuclear war the way we should and and i think it's i think it's changed since that that 2016 interview i think it's changed pretty radically um yeah you know when you've got was it this week or it was last week scientific american putting out that like just this enormous uh package that's got a documentary and this amazing reporting about the new nuclear age that we're entering into. I have friends that are like pinging me like, Hey, why is everyone talking about nuclear modernization now? Like, great question. I would love to tell you here's, here's why. Um, editors are more interested. My bosses really want to know about nuke stuff. They want nuke stories. I think it's changed. I think that like the, the Trump era frightened people uh, and have made people pay attention. And then Oppenheimer, 
Oppenheimer mm. really, really, really has got fo- like, you know, that's an interest. That's an entrance point. And then people are like, Hey, why is China building so many silos? Like, I didn't know about this. Uh, like, wait, we're building new kinds of nuclear weapons. What's this Russian thing? Like, so it opens all these, uh, all this stuff in people's brains and it's becoming more, it's not like it was, I think, uh, back in the seventies and eighties, but it's coming back around. Like the anxiety is starting to build again to, uh, answer the moment. Well, um, congratulations, humanity. It's not the only existential concern that we all are also trying to grapple with that. And of course, climate change and of course, geopolitical strife. And so, um, that's really the point of why I even wrote this book is to say we once upon a time, this was all feeling very familiar to me. Um, and I was trying to figure out, weren't we here before? And it turns out we were. We were in the mid 80s. We were in the, in the in mid 40s. Um, the world has cycled through a number of these periods where everything could come to an end. And we somehow have found the will and the wherewithal with the medium and the technology that we have to pull back from the brink. And um, that's what I'm hoping audiences take away from reading or sorry, readers take away from this book is that um, it is possible, um, but we have to pull out and meet people where they are to use your phrase um, and um, use every arrow in the quiver to try to get the message out there. Can you then, can we use that as a transition to talk about what we put a pin in earlier? Uh, Can I get your thoughts on Social media, TikTok, how we meet people where they are now. Sure. Well, I, as I mentioned, I've been studying this for 10 years. I've written three books on creator culture. I've um, now am lucky to be surrounded by hundreds of academics, emerging young scholars who are very invested in this topic because we now know that there's this these powerful technologies called social media that have spectacular effects that are uh, – everywhere around the world and in every sector of our society. Um, And that the people who seem to be harnessing this technology are often very young people who don't fully understand or have an appreciation for the power of the medium, but also some nefariously horrible, awful people who use uh, the medium in the most horrific ways, which um, has always occurred with every technology and every media that comes along. Um, But um, the most important takeaway here is is the fact that we cannot and shouldn't it would be a mistake to describe social media as another version of 20th century mass communication um it is uh, in fact not a narrative engine as i as i'll use that it is not about producing copyrighted film and television intellectual property um it is a, a means for organizing communities it's the social in social media that matters. And what creators, influencers, TikTokers, vloggers, game players, um, now numbering in the millions are doing, is they're organizing these communities and then making money off of that. Now, that may seem like a very uh, horrible or unsettling thing to say, except that you have to take a moment to think that we are um, making money off of all sorts of patterns of socialization. We always have. Um, for the minute we left the cave, probably while we were in the cave. Um, but it is a fraught concept that there are hundreds of millions of people using these technologies, not only to share their values and their interests and their identities and their hobbies and their, and their expertise, but they're also making money off of it. Um, but it is also important to also understand that there are of those hundreds of millions of people doing this, People who are very much aligned around the same sorts of anxieties, fears, concerns that we have. And what they have is a skill. They have this profound ability to organize communities around those interests and concerns. I call them um, online community organizers for profit. And a lot of the people who occupy nuclear nonproliferation organizations are desperate to figure out how to go online. And so there's a beautiful Venn diagram that can emerge, that can be drawn between creators who need to make a living on these platforms, but are also interested in sharing and advancing and enlightening and educating their community about the most critical concerns of our day and age. And um, activists and NGOs and civil society organizations who are equally as passionate about these causes, 
but don't necessarily fully understand how to harness that technology. And there you have the future Brandon Stoddards of the world are more likely going to be on TikTok and YouTube and Twitch and Snap um, and than they are necessarily across Netflix or Disney or HBO. That makes sense to me, except for there's one thing that I wonder about with all of the individual creators. Um, don't you lose a lot by not having collaboration? They do have collaborators. I think it's a misapprehension yeah. to think that they don't. Tell me, tell me. It's not like a lot of the a lot of these personality driven channels. There is a lot more than just a personality in front of the camera, uh, working in the background. And also, I would also I would also argue that one of the biggest strengths of these channels is that they are in collaboration with their audience in a direct way that previous mm. mediums are not. Matthew, are you a closet creator scholar that I didn't know about? Did I miss that interview? I did my I thought I did my homework, but I didn't fully realize you were already up to speed on this. Yeah, um, uh, these are social entrepreneurs, and part of being entrepreneur while they are running their businesses out of their bedrooms and their and their you know home office are very deeply uh, involved in what uh, a, a scholar calls relational labor. And that is a, a, a sort of relationship that is not only between them and their community, but between them and other creators. And by the way, members of their community are very likely to also be creators. So it is the unique nature of the networked nature of these these technologies that allow for these collaborations and these um, kind of uh, uh communities to organize and, and grow and cross-pollinate. Um, and I've been doing research over the last um, three months on this sort of world of creator activism and advocacy. And what's been so interesting is finding that for a lot of the organizations entering into this space, they're less interested in the creators who are already um, explicit about these causes and these concerns more interested in the people who built communities around a whole other set of concerns, let's say, I don't know, science fiction or our gameplay, um, but then happen to also think this matters and are willing to find ways to organically raise these concerns to their community, many of whom may also share these concerns. It's just not the center of their of the culture that they've that they've built online. Need to talk to Noah Caldwell Gervais. Have you ever? He's a YouTuber. Uh, you're familiar with the Fallout video games? Uh, a little bit. I'm not a game player at all. Now you're gonna hate me. Now no, I'm gonna. No, go. no, no. They're turning it into a TV. Uh, series, oh yeah, yeah, it'll be uh, early next on year. Amazon, on Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. He's a YouTuber. He he does like these. He's one of these guys that will make like a nine hour video about one video game, and it's like really in depth and kind of fascinating. He has one where he travels around America filming the locations of like feeling the filming the real life locations from the fallout video games and talking about their relationship to the game and to nuclear like American nuclear history, like very fascinating stuff. Um, so yeah, there's like, there's so much good stuff out there in these spaces that I think we would not like the, the maybe older members of the audience would not traditionally think uh, the, these kinds of stories and this kind of activism is happening. Uh, it's all out so there. Sad, though. but you're so right. You're so right. Speaking as the uh, an older member of the audience, uh, I you know no, you're you're totally right. I feel like I need a Google for this kind of stuff where I can easily you know pull it all together. Or will Google do it for me? Uh, increasingly, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's falling right? apart. I think Gen AI may do it for you. So yeah. Uh, yeah, you may have to ask Chat GPT to make you the list. Yes. <laughs> if it has a CEO. Or as my nephew tells me all the time, just bing it. Um. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, but I, I, I do want to just leave on a on an on this one note is that this was again as much as it is a, uh, a, a I, I tried to write a pot boiler, a page turner, a kind of a, almost a, a murder mystery, uh, uh, if you will, of of what the the struggles and the battles that were waged around this project and this film and and the surrounding set of extenuating circumstances that led to Reagan finally coming out as a nuclear abolitionist and changing very dramatically changing his rhetoric and tone. I'll just add, by the way, um, the first 
people, the first group I ever spoke to about this book after um, was at the Reagan Library to a bunch of Reagan historians, including the historian that I cite heavily in my book, who came and sat in the front row as I presented and read the chapter featuring her work. And they came up and said, no, he's absolutely right. There's two Reagans. There's the Reagan before the day after, and then there's the Reagan after the day after. And these are not the same two people. You can't, it's a very stark turn in rhetoric and policy that went on behind the scenes at the administration to come up with another way to not only um, bring the Soviets to the table, but to at one point put on the table, eliminating every weapon in the world, um, nuclear weapon. So. yeah, I, this is a how-to book, I hope, not just a history book. I've used that reference before um, because I think we're going to need um, to figure out the latest ways, strategies to uh, harness the media that we have today to reach the audiences where they're at um, and the communities who care or may don't even realize they care. Um, and um, that that comes from a very different uh, approach and it usually relies on the storytellers who know how to use the medium the best. David, thank you so much for coming on to Angry Planet and talking to us about this. I'm sure you will be back. <laughs> I much appreciate it. It's a pleasure, really, and an honor to get to talk to you. Thank you so much, you guys. That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. It's created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like us, if you really like us, angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com, where $9 gets you early access to all of our shows. Uh, And there'll be commercial free and then the occasional bonus thing that we do. Uh, Stay tuned there. Some stuff coming down the pipe soon. Uh, Thank you all for your patience and uh, putting up with us. It really does make... uh, the show enjoyable to be part of this community and to have you all around. We do listen to the feedback, by the way. Uh, I think that should be the apparent from the last couple episodes. Um, I will talk to you all soon. Maybe a little bit intermittent here going into the holidays. It could be hard to get guests on. Uh, but we'll be back. We'll steam in January. I think Jason and I are going to record a couple things to get us through December. We'll talk to you soon. We will be back soon with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then.